Dear friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 12, verses 25 to 29. It is the end of the pastor's written sermon. Now, Hebrews 13 remains, of course, but there's a notable shift from the end of chapter 12 into chapter 13 as the pastor there transitions to a series of practical applications before offering his final benediction and greetings. Our text this morning is where the sermon proper comes to an end. It is the rhetorical high point of the pastor's appeal for perseverance. It is not a long text. Like any preacher, the pastor writing Hebrews knows he can't go on at length in the closing moments of his sermon. And so he moves right to the heart of what has been his purpose throughout Hebrews as he offers his hearers a final warning and a final exhortation. The final warning is in verse 25a. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The final exhortation is in verse 28a. Therefore, the pastor says, let us be grateful. In the end, those are the two admonishments with which the pastor would leave his hearers and with which we are left. So this morning we'll consider those two things and reflect on their significance for our lives. We begin with the pastor's final warning in verse 25a, which is then supported in the rest of verse 25 to verse 27. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. It has been the pastor's main concern throughout Hebrews that his hearers fully heed the voice of God. That is, after all, how the whole thing began in chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And not only has he spoken to us, even now he is speaking. Verse 25 of our text says he's still speaking and it's still by his son. All of Hebrews has been about what it is God is speaking to us in and as the Son. And at the center of what the pastor has said about that Son is the fact that he is now enthroned above as our great high priest, making possible our drawing near to and our ultimate entrance in the heavenly realm. It's hard to miss that that's been the pastor's chief burden in this sermon, the heartbeat of Hebrews, as we've called it. 
He says as much in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now the point in what we are saying is this, the pastor writes, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Brothers and sisters, Hebrews is about the fact that the Son, through whom God speaks in these last days, is now enthroned above as our great high priest, the great priest whose offering was himself. And therein is the key, because what exactly is the message of him who is speaking through the Son? Well, verse 24 from last week gave us a clue. There the pastor says that we have come to Jesus in the heavenly Mount Zion. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is the word that Jesus' blood speaks? Well, we talked briefly about it last week, and there are several places we could turn in Hebrews to think about that more, but my mind goes today to the end of Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, the offering of himself on the cross, the shedding of his blood, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In short, the blood of Jesus Christ offers salvation, dear friends. Life with God in a place is ours through the blood that has purified the heavenly things themselves, as Hebrews 9 verse 23 put it. For as chapter 9 verses 27 and 28 say, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Salvation is ours through the mediation of our great high priest on the basis of his self-offering for our sins. We can go where he has gone. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the pastor said in verse 22 last week. That's what God is speaking to us by his son, dear friends. And Hebrews is written to say, don't refuse him who is speaking. 
Now, the pastor doesn't go into it at this point, but I'd like to take only a small diversion to make sure we're clear on where it is we hear this speech of God today. If God is speaking and speaking such a message as this, where do we hear his voice? I hope we're clear on that point. It's right here. It's in the pages of the Bible, the inspired word of God that through these scriptures, the Holy Spirit is testifying and God's voice is heard. Again and again, the pastor writing Hebrews talks like this. When he quotes the scriptures, for example, in chapter 10, verse 15, the pastor writes, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, as he then quotes from Jeremiah. Back in chapter 3, verse 7, the pastor writes, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, as he then goes on to quote from Psalm 95 today, If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In the scriptures, we hear the voice of God. In the Old Testament scriptures, yes, but equally in the New Testament, including Hebrews. The point is that the Old Testament as fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that is the overall message of the New Testament, all of that together is the vehicle of revelation. That has certainly been the pastor's focus as he has exposited the significance of Christ in light of the Old Testament. And so it has also been our objective as well in what we've thought about and I've been preaching about month after month after month. If you've been with us for this series in Hebrews, or even if you've only recently joined us, then verse 25 of our passage today isn't just for the original hearers of this sermon. Verse 25 is for you. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, speaking by his son in his word to your hearts, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we read it, and as I and others at Christ the King do our best to teach it week by week by week. Remember your leaders, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 will say, next time we're in this book, your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The God who spoke on Sinai now speaks through his eternal son, seated at his right hand, and he's offering the salvation provided by Jesus's blood. See to it, the pastor is saying, that you don't refuse him. Only this isn't a new concern in Hebrews, is it? The same verb translated here as see that was used back in chapter 3, verse 12 in a parallel warning. 
where in the ESV that verb was translated in chapter 3, verse 12 as take care. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's the concern that's been driving the pastor all through Hebrews, and it's what's driving him now at the end. Because have a look at the support the pastor gives for this warning in verses 25b to 27. In 25b, the pastor says why we must not refuse him who is speaking. For, he says, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Only we then need verse 26 to help us make clear some of what the pastor is talking about there. So the pastor says then in verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Reading verse 25b and verse 26 together then, we can see that the they, to whom the pastor refers in verse 25b, has to be the people of Israel at Sinai. Since in verse 26, the pastor specifies that the warning on earth mentioned there in verse 25b, took place at the time when his voice shook the earth. Well, it was at Sinai that God's voice shook the earth. Psalm 68 verse 8 says, The earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai. Judges chapter 5, verse 5 says, The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. So they, in verse 25b, refers to the people of Israel at Sinai, who are, of course, the wilderness generation. The same they whom the pastor mentions in Hebrews 4, verse 2, when he says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. All of this is reinforced by the fact that the verb here translated refused is the same verb that was translated as begged in chapter 12, verse 19, our text from last week, where the pastor noted that the Israelites at Sinai begged that no further messages be spoken to them. Same Greek verb. Now, reading verse 25b next to verse 26 also makes clear that in both cases, it was God who was speaking though some suggest that the pastor refers to Moses here in verse 25b when he writes about him who warned them on earth. 
The parallel to verse 26 makes clear it is the voice of God that shook the earth at Sinai. God's was the voice that the people heard and begged not to hear again. You may remember last week how they said, we will listen to you, Moses, only don't allow the Lord to speak directly to us again. In what sense then did God warn them at Sinai? Well, the pastor does not say explicitly, but I think we're to understand that God's covenant commandments always bring with them an implicit judgment on those who fail to keep the covenant. As we said last week, the visual and audible displays of God's glory at Sinai were understood by the people to be pictures of God's judgment. Moses eventually came to understand them as pictures of God's judgment against the hard-hearted Israelites. And as we saw when months and months ago we studied Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, it would be true that in the end, that generation did not escape, but instead fell in the wilderness. Listen once more to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15 and following. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? That would be the same as those who then were at Sinai. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. What began with the people's begging to hear no more from the Lord at Sinai would lead ultimately to their refusal of his word when they were told to enter God's promised rest. As one commentator puts it, quote, Sinai has become the embodiment of God's perpetual warning that rejected grace leads to terrible judgment. And how much more so for us, dear friends, if we reject him who warns from heaven. The pastor doesn't mince words here as he continues in verse 25. The verb translated to reject in the last part of verse 25 is a stronger word even than the refusal of the Israelites who did not escape. Literally, the verb translated here as reject means to turn away from. One scholar calls it the verb of apostasy. It is the same verb used, for example, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 4, referring to people who will not endure sound teaching, but who will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
One author summarizes the point this way. Considering the inexorable penalty for disobeying God's earthly message, how much greater will the penalty be in the greater instance of disobeying his heavenly message of grace through his Son? Surely no one will escape. This, of course, has been the writer's message all along. And so it has been. In fact, following the glorious opening of chapter 1 of Hebrews, this is exactly where the pastor's sermon began in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. There he writes, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It's the point the pastor later builds to in chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, where he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Now at the end, the pastor hopes to impress upon his readers the eternal significance of the choices that lie before them. That's why in the middle of verse 26, he looks ahead all the way to the end. The shaking of the earth at Sinai was one thing, but it was only a foreshadowing of a coming day when God would speak once more. But now he has promised, the pastor continues in verse 26 of our text this morning, now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Verse 27 then gives the explanation. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The quotation in verse 26 of our passage is the pastor's rendering of Haggai chapter 2, Verses 6 and 7. The same concept appears again twice in Haggai, later in chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. Those two passages then are in the background of the pastor's reference. In Haggai chapter 2, Israel is enjoined to work hard at completing the temple after their return from exile since they have the promise that God is with them and his spirit is among them. Be strong, the Lord says through his prophet Haggai in chapter 2 verse 4 of Haggai. Be strong, all you people of the land. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Sound like the pastor writing Hebrews? 
Then in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he says, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord promises that he will shake both the heavens and the earth, judging the nations of the world. Haggai 2 verse 21 says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. According to Haggai, this shaking will be a judgment on the nations in which the present world order will be overthrown and Jerusalem will be glorified as never before. Only now, focused as he is on the heavenly Jerusalem that we talked about last week, the pastor writing Hebrews rightly understands those words of Haggai's prophecy eschatologically to refer ultimately to the coming of the kingdom, of God's kingdom. Yet once more, the pastor says, picking up on that Haggai reference, yet once more, God will speak his final definitive word. Listen to how one author puts it. The phrase once more is crucial to the pastor's understanding of God's promise in Haggai. The hearers, that is the hearers of Hebrews, already know that the son who came once to remove sin, will return for the final salvation of his own. The God who has made provision once for all for the salvation of his people by speaking through his son will speak once more in a judgment so final that it will shake heaven and earth and bring God's own into the full enjoyment of that salvation. And so, dear friends, the pastor brings his sermon to a close by reminding his hearers that a removal of the present world is coming, that there is an infinitely greater shaking yet to happen, an eschatological cosmic shaking of the whole universe. Then the world will be shaken and changed, and only the unshakable will remain as all that is corruptible and defiling in the present creation will be removed and a new heavens and a new earth will begin. It is a point made by practically all the New Testament writers. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3 verse 10 of the judgment that will come upon the world after Christ returns. The heavens will pass away with a roar, Peter writes, 
and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But it is perhaps Paul who puts it most succinctly in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 31 when he says, for the present form of this world is passing away. And all of it, according to the end of verse 27 of our Hebrews passage this morning, all of it is in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The heavenly Jerusalem as the home of God's people. The eternal resting place of God. The city whose architect and builder is God. These are the things that will remain, brothers and sisters. The contrast here is not between things which are material and things which are spiritual. After all, you and I will be in that city in resurrected bodies. Rather, as one scholar puts it, these two realms that is the things that can be shaken, the temporal order as we now know it, and the things that cannot be shaken. These two realms are different because of their different relationships to God. He has made the first and will bring it to its consummation when he has, when he has achieved his purposes through it. It is not, however, his dwelling place. The heavenly city, on the other hand, is the place of his abode and the place of intimate fellowship with him. As its architect and builder, he has established it on a permanent, enduring foundation. And dear friends, it's both a promise and a warning at the same time. Is it not? That God who shook the earth when he descended on Mount Sinai is going to shake the heavens and the earth. All things. When Christ comes again in glory and power, it is both a promise to the faithful and a warning to the unfaithful. To the believing, persevering, faithful it is the promise of final salvation to be anticipated with joy. For only at the judgment will God's people enter into the fullness of the unshakable kingdom he has for them. But to the unbelieving, it is a warning. A warning that the day will come when everything that is of this world will pass away. And those who have their hopes and dreams, their security and their salvation rooted in it, will find themselves brought to utter ruin. And so it is that we come to the pastor's final exhortation of his written sermon in verses 28 and 29. Knowing that those who persevere in obedience are receiving the kingdom that cannot be shaken, the kingdom which they will finally enter at Christ's return, there can be only one appropriate response. Therefore, the 
pastor says in the beginning of verse 28. Let us be grateful. For we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That when God shakes the heavens and the earth, he will overturn human kingdoms and rulers and establish his kingdom forever. Nothing can prevent the kingdom of God from triumphing. As Daniel predicted in Daniel chapter 2, it is like a great stone that will shatter all other kingdoms and fill the world. Since believers have already received that kingdom and are assured of enjoying it in its fullness, they should be filled with gratefulness and thankfulness. Once again this week we see that the surest foundation for the life of faithfulness isn't fear of ultimate loss. It's a profound sense of gratitude Gratitude toward God for his goodness in offering to us unending fellowship with himself through his son. It's the gratitude which bursts forth in Paul's exclamation in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, where Paul suddenly exclaims, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Through such faith, through such gratefulness, believers serve God in a way that pleases him. That's what the rest of verse 28 is saying. And thus, the pastor says, thus, that is, as we are grateful through our thankfulness, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Only the pastor is not just talking here about what we do for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings in church. Of course, it includes that. But to offer God acceptable worship is to offer him our whole lives. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, you hear it, which is your spiritual worship. What's intended is something like what Paul also said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, that whatever we do or wherever we go, we must be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The life of the faithful is a life of worship, a life of approaching God through Jesus Christ with the offerings of praise and good works all of it pervaded by a deep sense of gratitude. And it will all be done with reverence and awe. For in our thankfulness, we will be continually conscious of the fact that what Moses said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4 verse 24 remains true today. For our God is 
a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, the pastor would leave us hearers, leave his hearers and us, with this final warning and final exhortation. As he has all through Hebrews, the pastor has put forward the word of God. It is a word which must either be received or be rejected. There is no middle ground. Reflecting on these verses in Hebrews, one author puts it this way, and with these words I'll close. Quote, Everyone is faced with a great choice in this life, a choice that is tested and refined later on. Into the cacophony of this world, into our busy lives, into the ever-present hum of trivial human endeavors, God is speaking. God calls to this world. He calls to each of us. At Mount Sinai, he spoke from the earth, but in the gospel today, he speaks from heaven. Our choice is a simple one. Will we heed that voice? Will we receive and obey the God who breaks into our worldly affairs? It is not easy to heed the call of God in a world like ours, to live for a world that is yet to come, that is invisible to our sight and evident only to our faith. But God does not intend for it to be easy, for it is the costly devotion of our hearts that he seeks. It is always that way. We must lose our lives in order to save them. We must give up the world to gain the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.